This morning, I have titled the, the sermon, Your Life and Circumstances Are No Accident. And I think that's the main idea of the opening chapter, uh, uh, verses in the first chapter. That's the main idea of the message this morning. So what a great way to uh, make that known by making the title of the message the main idea of the message. Your life and your circumstances are no accident. Let me, um, let me just give you a little background before we uh, dive into 1 Peter. And before I even do that, I want to I pray one more time and ask the Lord to uh, just to use this time in his word to form us. And I want to encourage you before I pray, uh, maybe I wonder sometimes if, and I know I feel this way sometimes too, maybe we wonder, does God answer our prayers? Does God answer our prayers? And I want to just encourage you, I can't get super specific on this, but I want to encourage you that, that over the last probably two to three weeks, uh, as I've been praying together with others here, uh, particularly on, on the staff and amongst the elders, we've just seen God answer very specific prayers, almost like dominoes falling, um, in such a way that I, I, I think God answers prayer always. And sometimes there's seasons where that happens, and sometimes there's seasons where we wonder, is he, is he answering prayer? Is he hearing my prayers? But then those seasons where sometimes dominoes fall, just, I think, just the Lord's way of encouraging us, reminding us, like, yes, I'm at work. Um, and I believe this. Some of you are here this morning in large measure because people have been praying that you would be. And that's encouraging to me as I look out and I see some of your faces that God has answered some very specific prayers. So that in mind, let's go before the throne of our Father who hears us. And Lord, we do pray this morning, that your word would work in power in our lives. As you speak to your people, and as we, as your people, respond to what you say, may your spirit really move our hearts to trust you, to love you, to follow you, to be obedient to you. And most importantly, Lord, all that just anchored in confidence in Christ. Thank you for Jesus, the living word, who gives us access to you, who makes it possible for your spirit to indwell our hearts. Father, in him, make us, make us your people more and more. Make us aware of our, of, our, of our position as your sons and daughters and make us joyful worshipers of you. We pray that in his name. Amen. Why study a book like 1 Peter? Um, you know, you could ask this question of just about any of the, of the books of the Bible, certainly the pastoral epistles of the Bible, and say, as 21st century Americans, do we have a lot in common with people who lived in the first century, right? 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, what do we, what could we have in common with people like this who received this letter, the people who Peter was thinking about when he wrote this letter? And to give you a little background on who they were, before I answer that question, I hope you know I'm going to answer that. We, 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 we have much to, to glean from this. The original readers to whom he wrote, um, this is a, this is a new, new, new set of churches. I mean, the faith is very young at this point. 
And these are, these are people who have come to faith, again, uh, very recently. And, and because of their, of their coming to faith, their identity now as Christians was becoming a great source of, of suffering for them, of grief for them. It was bringing about many trials in their lives. This was written to several churches who were peppered throughout the region that is modern-day Turkey. And these churches were located in certain villages or certain cities that were under Roman uh, rule. They were, uh, they were Roman colonies, but their culture was Hellenistic. They were Greek by culture. They had this heritage that, that, uh, that uh, was similar to Roman, but definitely different. But that's the world that they lived in, Roman Greek world. And these people were formerly, before they became Christians, they were formerly pagan in their religion. They worshiped the false gods of the the Greeks and the Romans, or perhaps some of them may have been non-religious people. That's who they were. But then the gospel was proclaimed to them, and they believed, and they became followers of Jesus. And that was radical. It was radical in their individual lives, and it was also radical in their culture because of their new Christian faith and this big change that it brought about in their conduct they were living very different lives than they used to before. Certainly big changes in their, their worldview. They were becoming marginalized in their society and by their society. They were being uh, alienated from relationships and their families and friendships. And many were being threatened with, at least threatened with. Some of them were already experiencing it, but the threat was there for this loss of honor in their society, and certainly that would affect their socioeconomic standing in their society, and possibly worse, possibly worse. Persecution was beginning at this point for for this church or these churches, but it was about to get worse. It was about to get worse. Now, because of that fact, this is who were the recipients of this letter. These were their circumstances. Throughout most of my lifetime, Western Christians and biblical scholars have often asked the question, how do we relate to that? This isn't our, this isn't our circumstances, right? We're not in a, in a society that's, that's as hostile towards us as they were. We live, fortunately, in a society where, generally speaking, our Christian faith does not affect our socioeconomic standing, socioeconomic standing, excuse me. It does not jeopardize many of our relationships or threaten our lives. That's been true for, for I think, all of our, our lives, especially in this context where we live. So what significance can a letter like this have for a people like us, whom these things feel very foreign? This is not our normal experience. Well, I want to say this, and I'm just saying this uh, as, a, as a, I hope, a, a fairly wise reader of the times. I think the days of relative ease for Christians in the modern West are likely changing, perhaps coming to an end to some degree. Um, we do live in an increasingly post-Christian society, and we do live in an age where the philosophies of the world are, are more and more so in direct uh, competition or opposition to a biblical worldview. So it's possible that as Western society changes, that we may experience more alienation, marginalization, or even persecution. And if persecution comes, we need to know First Peter. Now, it's also true that that may not 
really happen much more so in our lifetimes? Who knows, right? And by the way, I want to say this. If it does happen, it's not just that we'll be facing an opposition from outside of ourselves, but I think because of the, of the fact that we are all disciples of our own current culture, we face opposition from within ourselves, conflicts of our own worldviews and understanding and trying to match those up and wrestle with God's word and God's worldview. Like these are, these are potentially real struggles that we face. But again, even if persecution doesn't come, this letter is still highly relevant. There are biblical scholars throughout the centuries who have said some very significant things about 1 Peter like this. Edmund Clowney describes 1 Peter as the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and the conduct that it inspires. That's a pretty important quote, right? The most condensed description of what Christianity is, 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 is about, how it affects our lives. Or Martin Luther, who we've mentioned a few times, uh, said that this is one of the noblest books of the New Testament and believed that it contains everything that a Christian needs to know. One of my favorite quotes uh, on, on 1 Peter and its relevance comes from Karen Jobes, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary. She says this. She says, this letter's universal relevance, in other words, this, this is applicable to everybody, it's due to its presentation of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out within the larger unbelieving society. I'm going I'm to repeat that because I think it's really good. The letter's universal relevance is due to its presentation of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out within the larger, broader, non-believing society. So in a nutshell, those quotes are saying this. First Peter is a book that shows Christians how to live and how to live in a non-Christian world. And we certainly live in a non-Christian world. So we need this book. We need to hear what this letter has to say to us. And as we study this over the coming weeks, it's my desire that we would see ourselves in it. Right? Don't just see the first century recipients, that we would see ourselves in it and learn not only how to live out our faith in a post-Christian context, but why we can. Not just how, but why we can. To see how God actually uses, how God even plans difficult circumstances. How he uses our sufferings. How he uses persecution in the church to do something in us. To actually refine us and to make us what he desires us to be, his bride, holy and pure and ready for the eternal salvation that is reserved for us in heaven. So let's look at the text. And we're just going to begin it. We're just going to look at the first two verses of chapter one. Look down with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's as far as we're going to read today because there's a lot here in these first two verses for us to sort through. 
And as we spend the next few minutes unpacking these two verses, I want to ask yourselves the following question. If you were a group of people who were beginning to feel the weight of opposition in society, what would you need to hear? What would you need to hear, especially if you knew that that opposition was about to get worse? What would you need to hear? That's the question that Peter must be thinking as he writes. And the contents of these two verses are here to give foundational truths necessary for God's people to endure the present discomfort and the coming storm. I'm actually really excited about what's coming next week as he gets a little further into this because I think it speaks so much to helping us understand how to live the Christian life. But these two verses are foundational for us to get there. We have to know a couple really important things. And here's what we need to know. We need to know who we are. In other words, how can you have strength and comfort in your identity as God's people? And we need to know why is this happening? Why are the things around us happening? How do we have strength and comfort in our understanding of God's sovereign role in our circumstances? But before we know those two things, there's something even more that we need to know. And it's that the opening phrase reminds them that Peter is writing to them as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is important because it means that these are the words of God himself. This is God's word given through Peter to them, and it needs to be received as such. God has got a word for his people. He has a word for his people, and that word is going to remind them, again, who they are and why these things are happening. So let's look at those two questions as our two sort of sermon points here today. The first one is, who are you? Go back to verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this next phrase here, after he talks about him being a, an apostle, describes the intended recipients of the letter as elect exiles of this dispersion. I want us to take a close look at the words he uses in describing his readers. The first word he uses is elect. What does that mean? It means chosen. You are the chosen of God. This is a word that is used 22 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to a group of people who were chosen out of a larger group of people who were not chosen. Okay? You are chosen out of a larger group of people, and as this chosen group of people, this is what we see throughout Scripture, this is who is chosen for inclusion among God's people, out of the world, and included now among the people of God, and therefore, as the people of God, you are heirs. You are recipients of his blessings and of great privilege. It's the same word used in the Greek Old Testament to define Israel. And of course, there we see Israel as God's chosen people. His readers, who were familiar with the Old Testament, would have heard that similarity and understood that in Peter's mind, he's saying, you're equal in status. You are God's 
elect. You are God's chosen people, heirs, recipients of his blessings and the great privileges that he has. You have been called out by God for himself, blessed and protected, just like Israel in the Old Testament. You're elect. The second word he uses to describe them then as exiles. Exiles always refers to a temporary resident in a foreign place. Some versions translate this as those who reside as aliens. You are the chosen who reside as aliens. You are exiles. You are temporary residents in a foreign place. Now, when you see this word exile, we shouldn't think of it in this context as someone who's been forced to leave their homeland and be relocated to a foreign land like we would see in the Old Testament when Israel was exiled into Babylon, right? Like in the days of Daniel. It's not like that. Nor should we see this as people who are strangers in their land as if they don't know their neighbors or they don't, uh, they're not known by their neighbors in any way because these are people that he's writing to who probably were native to their regions. They knew their neighbors. They, these are the places that they grew up. And yet he still describes them here as exiles, which is because I think he's trying to help them understand that though this is your homeland, it's not your ultimate homeland. Your residence here is temporary. In other words, you're kind of like renters. You're kind of like renters. In other words, you're not living in the place where you hold the deed. That's what it means to be a believer. They have another home that's permanent. Someday, they'll reside there forever. But for now, their place of residence is short. It's brief. They live here daily in the present, but their mindset has to be that it's not forever. So let's go back to the main question. What does Peter want these Christians to understand about who they are? I think they're actually being told a lot here. And again, this is really foundational for where he's going to go for the rest of the letter. He's saying, you're sojourners. Christians, you are sojourners. Not in an earthly sense, because again, many of these people lived in these cities and villages their entire lives. But in a spiritual sense, you're sojourners. This is not your true homeland. Your homeland is heaven. And so any residence, any place you live, any, any existence you have here has to be seen as temporary in that sense. And yet, you're not just sojourners, you're chosen sojourners. You're chosen. People whom God has called to be his own people. People that God has promised to protect people that God has promised to bless, and ultimately people whom he has invited to inhabit his own kingdom in heaven eternally. That's who Peter is writing to. And there's one more interesting description that Peter gives about his readers. He says they are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And he lists these different cities and villages, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. What's the simple meaning here? is that this letter is written to Christians in churches that are, again, dispersed throughout a region that we know today as Turkey. And I think the order of mention of each region is, is probably the likely sequence of, of where this letter would travel and how it would get around to all of them. We'll learn in chapter 5 that a man named Silvanus is taking this letter to these different churches. But there's a more significant meaning in his use of the word dispersion. The word diaspora has always been used to describe the dispersion of the Jews throughout the Old Testament. 
after they were conquered, after Israel and Judah were, were dispersed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the late 7th and early 6th centuries. Again, think the era of Daniel and Ezra and those guys. Now, some scholars have taken this word here by Peter, the diaspora, the dispersion, to think that he must have been writing to Jewish Christians then, which might explain not only his use of dispersion, but also elect and exiles. But these regions that are mentioned are significant. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia have to inform our thinking about who this audience really was. Were these Jewish Christians or were they someone else? There probably were some Jews in those regions. Perhaps some of the, the reason why the gospel got to these places, perhaps some of these were the Jewish folks who were there on the day of Pentecost and heard the gospel and then went back home and shared the gospel. It's possible that these churches were planted in part, in part because of that. But we have to know that these regions were predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish peoples, which meant that the churches were made up of Again, Gentile believers who were formerly pagan, not Jewish in their worldviews. They were formerly pagan, not Jewish in their religious practices or their non-religious lives. So track with me on this. If we put all this together, in light of the question, what would you need to hear as a people who are beginning to feel the weight of opposition in society and it was about to get worse, we get this great encouragement from Peter about who you are. You're no longer to be regarded as pagan outsiders, residents of a Hellenistic Roman society who are second-class citizens, not just to your countrymen, but to God's original chosen people, the Jews. No, you are the elect. You are the chosen people of God with all the inherent blessings and privileges, with all of the protections that you've heard were reserved for Israel in the Old Testament, they're reserved for you. But even more so, you're the true people of God who've been brought in through Christ, through the gospel. And so this life that you're living the society that you're in that, that, that perhaps may be threatening you. It's not your ultimate home. This is not your permanent existence. You have a better home. You have a home in heaven, and it awaits you shortly. But now, in the meantime, see yourselves as sojourners. See yourself as sojourners, as renters, who are dispersed throughout the world as the people of Almighty God, because you, church, are chosen. I think that's the, the underlying motive behind these first two verses. There's a lot packed into a few words. And these are extremely encouraging and comforting words for a people who are starting to feel persecuted by their faith. And as I said, I, I'm, I'm really excited about where we're headed. As I read ahead in 1 Peter, I see so many things that I, I think are so needed and applicable to our experience and our mindset living in the world that we live in. Again, not just because of any outside threats to us that may or may not exist, but, but maybe even more importantly to the internal threats of our own thinking. 
Do we think like Christians? Are we thinking like people who understand who we are by the word of God? Are we being formed by scripture or are we struggling so much because we're being so formed by the world? And here Peter is reminding us, this world isn't, it's not your home. This is temporary. You are sojourners. You have a different reality. You need to have a different mindset because you have a different reality. God has changed you. He's transformed you into something else. You have a home in heaven. You're renting here. Don't, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the thinking of the world. Don't let the fears and the anxieties of the world overcome you and overtake you because this is temporary. Think bigger. Think different. You're chosen. You're elect. God has you. You belong to him. I think that's really foundational as we go forward. Do you believe that to be true about who you are? Do you believe that, church, that, that God has chosen you out and called you his people? And do you see this life that you're living with all its trials and all its, all its challenges and all of its circumstances? Do you see it as, first of all, temporary? In other words, endurable. This isn't going to last forever. It's not always going to be like this because God owns you. He's got you. The inheritance is yours. Do you believe that about who you are? That's who we are, church. That's the first part of the encouragement that he gives them in these verses. And now that we, I hope, better understand who we are, Peter wants us to know why this oppression is happening to you. Why do we live in a world and within in our own, our own uh, uh, inner struggles? Why, why is all this stuff happening? Why is everything broken? Look at the other part of verse 2. Actually, just look at the whole thing again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. You are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Your circumstances, he's saying, as elect exiles dispersed throughout the Roman-controlled Hellenistic regions of Asia Minor are all according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, we need to do a little work here to examine this, the meaning of this word foreknowledge. Let me, let me, let me give you, a, I think, a helpful way of understanding it. Because you can intuit, right, foreknowledge, something known beforehand. But as one commentator points out, foreknow can refer not just to God's knowing a fact beforehand, like Peter's readers would be chosen sojourners in Asia Minor, but this idea of foreknowledge speaks to his knowing people. Not just about people, but knowing the people themselves with a personal, loving, fatherly knowledge. And so thus, 
according to the foreknowledge here, suggest according to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. Why are you the elect exiles in this dispersion, living in this time and place that you do? Because your father lovingly foreknew you and put you here. Get this because it's important. What exactly is according to the foreknowledge of God? Everything about their lives. Everything about their lives, their status as exiles, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their current experiences of persecution, the trials that they're enduring because of their physical location in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, etc. All of that, everything about their lives is in accordance with God's foreknowledge. Which means we can conclude that all of it is in accord with with his fatherly love for them, with his will for them. So in other words, going back to the title of my message that I said is the main idea, I think what he's saying here is everything about your lives is no accident. Everything about your lives is no accident. Your present experience of persecution, the fact that it's going to get worse, is no surprise to God. In fact, He chose you for this. He purposed you for this and this time and this place. He placed you where you are right now in these exact places. He's planned this out before the foundation of the world. He foreknew you for this as a means by which he would show you his love as a father to you. He would show you his care as a people whom he could say, you are my people, my people. And in order to prepare you for the future home that you ultimately belong to. He foreknew all of that for you through all of this to accomplish those great goals in your life, to love you, to care for you like a father, and to prepare you for the home that your Father has prepared for you. Current application. This is true of every Christian. This isn't just true of the recipients of this letter. It's true of every Christian, every time, every place, and every circumstance. This is true of you. This is true of you. And I want you to think back over your week, over your month, over your year, and I want you to consider how have you viewed your life? I know you've gone through trials. I know you've gone through challenges. I know some of you have questioned, why am I in this place? (laughs) Why am I living in this time? Right? Consider the things that you've gone through and consider how, how much angst and anxiety that may have caused in your life. Consider how those challenges may have caused you to question God's care, God's awareness of your existence and your circumstances, God's love for you. Why? Why these things that are happening in my life? I think we've all reckoned with thoughts like that. And for many of us, those thoughts have overcome us. So what does Peter want to say to us 
who are living in the midst of a world that is challenging, it is hard, and it may get worse. God, your Father, lovingly foreknew all of this for you and put you here for your good. That doesn't take away the challenge. It doesn't take away the difficulty or even the pain of the sufferings and the trials or the persecution, right? It doesn't take those things away, but it gives you a different mindset, a very important mindset, right? This is not my permanent reality. This is not all that there is for me. I can endure this because I have a father who has saved me out of this. In my present experience, I'm not always living in the fullness of that salvation, but the fullness of that salvation has been promised, sealed, and will be delivered. And by God's foreknowledge, I'm going to go through this right now because this is how he's preparing me for that reality. That doesn't make it easy, but it makes it entirely different. It makes it endurable because I know there's a purpose in it, and that purpose is anchored in a father who loves me and church corporately who loves us. That's so important. Can you believe that the circumstances of your life are actually what's best for you? I think that's what Peter's trying to say. This is what's best for us. Because God's in it. And he's got us. You say, Phil, how did you get all of that from the first two verses of this letter? I've read the whole book. I've read the whole letter. I know where he's going with this. Next week, like I said, I'm really excited about what he says. I think it's so needed. It's so needed. But these opening verses are foundational. There's an unmistakable setup here for exactly what we've just laid out, right? This is who you are. This is what God is doing. This is why these things are happening to you. If you know that, you can then hear from Peter the how of how to live this life, how to hope in Christ in the midst of hopeless circumstances, right? Because we belong to him. He knows us. He loves us. He's our father. He's got us. We got to know that. He's clearly telling them that everything about their situation is planned out by God and that their comfort should be rooted in their position as God's chosen and loved people as they prepare to endure what else is coming. Look at what he finishes with in this opening. Again, back in verse 2. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. I want you to notice the full involvement of the Trinity here. You've been chosen and placed here in this time and in this place by the loving foreknowledge of God, the Father, as he planned it before the creation of the world. And his spirit, his indwelling presence in our lives, 
His Spirit will use these circumstances to sanctify you. Sanctify means to make you holy, to make you more like Jesus, right? It's, it's, this, it's this work of transformation, making us more holy, set apart in purity. He's working through these things for that purpose by His Spirit, and that sanctification will lead you to a greater conformity and obedience to Jesus Christ your Lord. Part of what it looks like to be made holy, to be sanctified, is to obey Christ. To hear his words and, and to follow him, to submit to him, to trust his word more than the word of the world. And the truth is, God's going to put you through the ringer in order to accomplish all of that. He's going to put the whole world through the ringer. And again, I say that because I've read ahead. You're going to learn that in chapter 4. But he's doing this to purify you. And then I love the last thing he says here. By the sprinkling of his blood, it, it, that's the sign of the covenant. And so I think what he's saying to the people here is that God is he's working in this way by his Spirit, for obedience to his Son, and by the sprinkling of his blood, even if you fail, even if you fail to believe, even if you fail to trust, if you fail in your obedience to him, the sprinkling of his blood serves as a reminder to you of his covenant with his people that though you may break fellowship with him through sin, you've been covered by the blood of Jesus. It's a gospel promise. In other words, God is working all this, so follow him in this, but listen, you can't mess it up. You can't screw this up. Because you were covered by the blood. You were his covenant people. I love that promise. God's got you. This is incredible comfort and encouragement in light of hard days ahead. So is, there, is this applicable to us? I hope you realize, of course it is. His intended audience here are people who are a lot like us in so many ways. They're Gentiles or non-Jewish people, scattered believers in a non-Christian, an increasingly anti-Christian, hostile society. And if we say, that sounds kind of familiar, then we can grab onto this as our own because we too live lives as Christians in an increasingly post-Christian society. They were in a pre-Christian society. Ours is post, Right? The, 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 the worldviews, the philosophies of the world and the philosophies and worldviews of Christianity are increasingly diverging. Uh, we don't live in Christendom anymore. There's some good in that. I'm, I'm actually kind of thankful for that. But, but it means that there's going to be increased marginalization and hostility because the worldviews are so opposed to one another. This is the, this is the world that we live in. But we need to know God has chosen us for this. He's chosen us for this. We may get put through the ringer as well, but we can stand fast in the knowledge that we're elect, chosen by God, all of his blessings and the inheritance of Christ. We are temporary residents. This is not our home. Our hope isn't here. It doesn't all have to get better here. We can look forward to a lasting eternal dwelling and look forward to it and even claim it now as we wait for it. And God is in control. Our circumstances are for our sanctification, for our purity, for conformity to Christ. 
And when we get those things, when we are undergirded by that hopeful encouragement, Peter can say to us, as he says to these people, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. God's grace is upon you. His favor rests on his people. Be at peace. Let's pray. Father, as we hear these words, I pray that you'd just drive them deep into our hearts. And Lord, we're certainly aware that whatever, whatever thoughts may come about uh, our, pre- our experience in, in the world around us, Lord, whether there's uh, any persecution that, that we may face uh, for following you, um, Lord, I, you know, I don't know. No, no one but you knows the future for the church here. But Lord, I, I, I certainly believe that we're under attack from our own thinking, from our own doubts and our own, our, own, um, our own philosophies that have been so discipled by the world rather than by your word, that we're, we're so tempted to believe things that, that will lead to our anxiety, to our fear, to depression, to crushing weight. So I, I just pray, Lord, that you drive these truths deep into our hearts this week and bring, bring healing to us as we understand that we belong to you. You're doing something different in us and through us. We have a, a, a different hope. We have a bigger hope, a greater hope, a brighter hope, a lasting hope. We have a living hope in Christ. Gird us up in that truth, Lord. Make us a people who are growing in maturity as we trust you with our daily lives. And Lord, finally, I, I just want to pray specifically for those who are here today who have, who have been battling with fear and anxiety over the circumstances in their lives. Lord, you know those circumstances. I don't. But I just pray that, that you would use even this message, this text, to go right to the heart of what it is that they're battling, what it is that they're afraid of, and remind them, Lord, of who they are and, and, and why the things around them that are happening are happening, that you are working in it for our good. I just pray that they would believe that, Lord, and that they would see it, that you're working for our good, that you love us, you have a purpose in it. Help them to trust you. Help us to trust you. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.